Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome again to the Hopcast Book Show, show number 43, which is always a staggering well, every Every week, I mean, even when we went, show number two, crikey, we've got to show number two. Yeah, it's a bit like that. <laughs> Oh, well, we'll get used to it. Number 50, we're, we're thinking of through what we might do with that. Um, we should make a big splash of do you know what? 50 shows. I really hope it falls at Christmas because it is also my 50th birthday, the 50th show. And we could ha- we could really make a big thing. We could. So note to everybody, Rebecca's birthday is her 50th on Christmas <laughs> Day. Let's, let's just all not forget it. 25 plus 25. That's quite nice and neat, isn't it? 25th of December, 25th of December, double that. It's my birthday, 50. <laughs> You've really given this some thought, haven't you? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we look forward to that. Anyway, um, I'm sort of panicking Back about to reality. What, what presents to get you. Welcome to the Hopcast Bugs. Book Show. Bugs. <laughs> I thought you were burping then. <laughs> let's, uh, let's introduce ourselves and the show properly. The Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. A little later, we have Helen Gray, who is a wonderful editor who's worked with two of our authors. Uh, it's a really good, deep interview about you know the process of editing and the approach and the subtlety that's needed and the, um, the diplomacy that is sometimes yeah, needed with authors. You, you have to be a people person to be a, a, a very effective editor. I think that's one yeah, of the lessons I think that we you have to, Well, I think you have to be sensitive. As well as sometimes but, rule of iron, a rod of iron as well. So uh, we'll be debating that with Helen uh, a little later. Um, but we are uh, Hobet Books. We are UK independent publishers of the following genres. Crime. Suspense. Thrillers. And what's the final one? Mystery. Mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I should know that off by heart, but I, I keep forgetting. Yeah, that. but sometimes the things you know so well, like, I don't know, your middle name, um, are the things that elude you. There was one point when I was filling out a form and it asked for my full name and I couldn't remember whether my middle name had an E on the end or not. My middle name is Anne. I couldn't remember. I just I had no idea. I had to ask my mother. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Blimey, I'm surprised she remembered. She's 81 now. Uh, anyway, uh, we we uh, we do publish those books, and we've had a lot uh, published recently, which we will no doubt drop in a little bit later. But if you'd like to know more about Hobeck Books, please go to our website www.hobeck.net, uh, where you can uh, see the profiles of our authors, buy the paperback copies of the books, uh, find our blog, which we haven't written for ages, which we ought to do, but we're so busy doing other things. <laughs> And you'll see our submissions page, which says closed. Because uh, <laughs> we're still working through the last lot. And for those who keep asking, we do get messages on an almost weekly basis saying, when are you open again? 
Well, I'm sorry. We have no plans for the rest of this year and probably for a chunk of next year too um, because, well, we're really at capacity now. Um, once we've decided which of the submissions that came through we'd like to offer contracts to. We had such an overwhelming yeah, response, didn't we, in September? So Yeah, staggering quality, big names, some of them. And, um, yeah, I mean, just amazing. So uh, more on that later uh, when we uh, finally read all of them. <laughs> but we are also, and we've been working this week very, very uh, extensively on the Christmas anthology. Well, you have. I've, I've, I've sort of <laughs> well, tweeted about uh, it a couple of times. I ought to give some credit to um, one of our team members, Anthony Dunford. Anthony's been a complete star this week because he's proofread all the stories as well just because he felt like it and he wanted to. And he's been a massive help to me. So, yes, we've had two of us on the proofreading. And I've still got four or five left to go. Um, which I will do at the beginning of next week. But I, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I don't normally like to think about Christmas in November, but it has actually made me a teeny bit Christmassy reading yeah, the stories. The, the dark side of Christmas. Now, we're raising uh, money for charity in uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh. Street Reads, it's an offshoot of the Simon community in Scotland, and they help homeless people uh, get access to, to, to literature and to books and also to help them write what they wish to write so we think it's a really worthy connection uh, and it's two cities that we love so we have uh, decided that all royalties from this book will go to the simon community and street reads and uh, yeah pre-sales are up now so take yeah. a look on amazon for that um very exciting we'll get into the news before we get to uh, helen gray's uh, interview um what have you got this week? I've got I've got one big thing on the audiobook front, which has been my focus this week. But I seem to have quite a lot of news this week, don't I? You do. Do you want me to start off with the, the sort of the, the what is proper news <laughs> as opposed to uh, my style of news? I, um, so I think the most important news item that um, of the last week that applies to uh, possibly a lot of people who listen to this podcast is the fact that the um, Crime Writers Association. Um, from next year are allowing authors to nominate themselves for dagger awards so previously except for the debut dagger which um was open to uh, you know people who've just written their first book um next year because uh as a self-published author you can now be a member of the crime writers association that was a, a something that um came that was up. a big significant move yeah, yeah so it, it makes sense that they are now saying okay if you're a self-published author you could nominate yourself because you haven't got a publisher to nominate you for you know say the ian fleming award or whatever it is um so that, that's great you know another further sort of level of democracy of um yeah it's access. high time high time it's a reflection of the, the fact that the very large proportion of crime writing is now self-published in our case independently small publisher uh, yes, of course, we nominate um, you know, some of our authors for these awards. And uh, I think that's good. I mean, they'll, they'll be absolutely swamped I mean, by CWA. But it's quite funny because one of the judges, um, so I email ebooks to the judges and we post them as well. And one of the judges replied more recently to me saying, oh, yes, I remember you. I, I have just read one of your uh, previous nominations, but I'm not going to say what I think. <laughs> so oh. they know us. <laughs> They know us. Right. Well, that, that that's always encouraging. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of the business, isn't it? It's getting known and established. And, you know, a year ago, no one had heard of Hobeck um, or so. 
So. And I can't walk down the street now for autographs and mobbing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, I wish, but anyway. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at Publishers Weekly, and um, there's a... I mean, this is something that is a trend that is developing, and if you listen to Joanna Penn's podcast, The Creative Pen, she talks about this a lot, and uh, that's artificial intelligence uh, recording audiobooks. Now, I've listened to certain samples of things, but the trouble with AI is that the nuance of certain aspects of the read and the performance, it, they mess up. Uh, if you've ever watched a YouTube clip, um, I mean, say dealing, I, I often watch stuff about military stuff all the time, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm a bit of an obsessive. You'll get these AI voices on them and they will totally mess up things like figures or acronyms. A bit like when Satnav tries to say Loughborough. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. The Loughborough, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of, you know, it's that kind of mess up. Um, and you know, AI is improving a lot, and they've what they do is they sample certain people's voices and use them to to, to read. But the bottom line is, do we really want just a, a you know a reasonably accurate read? No, no, we want character. I mean, because they can't do character voices in fiction. Um, they really can't speak with that degree of authenticity. I mean, a lot of what I do when I'm narrating, it's interpreting and delivering each sentence to the maximum. Not just a straightforward, accurate read. It's a performance. And I don't think AI can do that. And also, I mean, for me, it's it's you have a kind of a relationship with the, the narrator. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks in the car and... I do feel that I, I actually look forward to hearing their voice. Yeah, and it's it's you're being told a story by a human being. Absolutely, I so, think that's an important connection. Anyway, there is no doubt. I mean, this is the article. So, could this be magic? It says. <laughs> Over the past decade, audiobook sales, driven by digital audio, have exploded. Sales in 2020 exceeded 1.3 billion dollars, up 12 percent on 2019, and then there's a. Big increase in the number of Americans who, well, 2% increase in people who use audiobooks. So now 46% of Americans use audiobooks. Uh, but producing audiobooks is expensive and time consuming. Um, I was going to use an expletive there, something related to Sherlock. Anyway, um, so the appeal of automating audiobook creation is easy to understand. Yeah, you can understand the appeal. The traditional process can take two hours or more in the studio for one finished hour. Yep, I think that's about the average, yep. And the average audiobook is eight hours long. But what you're not revealing is the editing. If someone came up with AI editing, I would, you know, I would probably insist on having children with them. But um, they haven't done that. A significant factor in the cost is the talent. Brand name talent is paid $1,000 or more <laughs> for... Uh, per finished hour, I suppose brand name talent being, you know, Stephen Fry would be commanding like 5,000. Um, and studio time and post-production added, it's very, very expensive. Well, we have our own studio here. That's where we are at the moment. Um, and that wasn't cheap. Uh, the editing, I do myself. The narration, I do myself. Um, it is it is uh, really expensive. But um, they are looking at uh, the digital... Auto narration technology, which would be uh, 
um, you know, what we've been discussing, which is, you know, reasonably faithfully read, performed, automatic narration, but without the magic of those pauses that one puts in to give <laughs> emphasis. Um, and uh, it's a long old thing, this. Uh, what's, the, what's the point it's trying to make? Oh, blimey, it goes on forever. <laughs> There's a lot um, to discuss then. <laughs> well, no, Google Google um, have come up with some software which is going to do this. Um, I think what it what it would help, look, if you just want someone reading, you know, the words read to you um, blandly, you know, and but faithfully, then fine. I mean, for AI non-fiction, works. this is this would be um, a good development because non-fiction you, you are just after the facts aren't you you're not really caring about the voice no well i mean here here are the options so deep zen i've been in touch with them they're based in london and they were looking for voices and they never got back to me um but they were saying you know if you want to be one of the voices of deep zen and i've heard some of their narration and it <laughs> sounds like very blake seven to it's, me it's yeah <laughs> confirmed um uh, it's um it's quite good it's quite good uh, but you've got to imagine that the samples they put on their website will have been uh, produced to within an inch of their life in terms of getting the very best performance out of the AI algorithm and all mm. that sort of thing. So whether or not, you know, just uploading your text and 15 minutes later you've got an audio book is going to work, I don't know. Then there's another one called Speech Key, which I've never heard of before, but they're based in Siberia. And, um, I, I, you know, uh, they say they'll be able to do your audio book for $500. Well, look, I've done audio books for five hundred dollars. In fact, less than that for big outfits. Um, you know, because I wanted to sort of ingratiate myself with uh, the, the company involved, who, who are the biggest producers in the UK. But they were paying me pittance, and that's mm. including editing. So actually, yeah, that is cheaper than if you did it, you know, commercially. Yeah. But I, I think the, na- the, the, the 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 fact is that audio books are expensive. Um, they're hard to market. So what you do generally speaking, is you market the book and people pick up the option of the audio. Yeah, so, I mean, on Amazon, you, you, you do now have, don't you, the three options, Kindle, paperback or hardback or whatever, and then um, Audible through them, that is. But Yeah, uh, Speech Kit, they're in the States, and they say they're doing non-fiction. Yeah, so academic, I can yeah. see the benefit. Yeah, that's that works better. Uh, Descript is a fully featured DIY solution that includes everything from screen recording and video editing to voice transcription and audio editing. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think transcription is a really useful thing. We could use it for this podcast. That would be useful. Describe <laughs> audio. True. There's lots and lots of options here. Anyway, look, I'll refer you to the it's publishersweekly.com. Where they're talking about it. I don't think the technology is there yet. I still think that when it boils down to it, a human performance is going to be better. I would love the AI editing to come in at some point because it would save me so much time. Even if it was a question of marking down in the audio when I make a mistake and so the computer has a has, has a sort of a warning flag that says something needs to be changed here. But the bottom line is mistakes creep in. I mean, I, I go through mine with a fine tooth comb. It takes hours with the text mm. to make sure I've got absolutely everything correct. And even then, we listen to it in the car, don't we, sometimes? Mm. And you may find two or three mistakes in a whole book but you have to listen to the whole thing to get there mm-hmm. yeah and there's all sorts of things that can catch you out uh you know when you're actually producing an audiobook that 
you need to, there are certain technical things that have to be done to uh, meet the retailer's expectations. Mm. And it's, it's fiddly as making sure there's just under a second of silence at the beginning of each chapter. Yeah, because it goes through quality assurance with the... Yeah. Um, and you can the, get caught out so easily. One file could be 1.1 seconds gap. And they and throw it back at you, exactly, don't they? Exactly, and then you, you, you're back to square one. Anyway, look, I'd rather blathered on about <laughs> it. Is your passion, though? <laughs> yeah, and, and and I was going to talk. I thought we will talk about this after the interview. But um, you know, I've had a really good week in in, in audio terms. Uh, stamina is a big factor for the you know a computer doesn't have that problem, but a human does <laughs> for sure. Um, but uh, I think I think my my number one piece of advice for anyone looking at audio is be patient. It takes forever. And get to love herbal tea, but we could talk about that. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. Right, what else have you got? (laughs) So um, I'm sure most people who listen to this know that I'm a bit of a fan of um, good old Malcolm Rutherford, the uh, Manchester United uh, man who kicks balls, um, who also is very uh, big on uh, promoting reading amongst children, especially um, children who are living in poverty. So I was very pleased to find out that he's been named as Future Book Person of the Year. Um, so the future book is um, an annual conference by the bookseller. So every year they yeah. they um, name a person of the year. So the person of the year is somebody who works to promote books and reading in some way, some form. So he's following some quite big names, Kit Duval and Meryl Halls. And now we've got lovely Malcolm. And he's accepted this. Um, and he's doing it under a pseudonym of Marcus Rashford. <laughs> Apparently so, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, he's got his book, You Are a Champion. And he also has, I didn't know this, actually, the Marcus Rashford, I've got it right this time, Book Club, which is a reader recommends program that showcases the work of young emerging writers and illustrators from all backgrounds. Isn't that lovely? It is lovely. Do you know what, though? This week, um, his manager, Ole Gunnar Ole Gunnar Well, if I did it properly, it'd be Ola Gunnar Saussier, something like that. Anyway, uh, Oli, as then as he's colloquially known, uh, who's in trouble, and by the time we do this podcast, he might have already been sacked. Um, he said that Marcus should give up all, all that stuff and just concentrate <gasps> on his football. No, I don't like Ollie anymore. No, Ollie actually, this is very un- uncharacteristic for him to say something That's like that because he's good. a very, very well read and, 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 and uh, all rounded kind of individual. He's not a very good manager. That is a definite hump for me. On yeah, that well, I would say so. Uh, but yeah, no, that, well. Congratulations, he's been hoovering up the awards. He's been yeah, made Dr. Marcus great. Rashford. I love he's, it, though. I love it. Yeah, it's look, he's, he's, it's, he's of the zeitgeist at the minute. And, um, yeah, I mean, he could improve his football. I actually have a self selfie with him. You know that, don't you? Did you know I have a, had a selfie with... Oh, dear, I'm sorry. That was me. <laughs> I've been having um, gastric issues and that's come out on the on the podcast. Yes. I've, you, a, I've had a selfie with Magnum. Uh, Mar- Mag- <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> Agnes Greenberg, what? Marcus Rashford. I've had a selfie. Okay, it was a cardboard cutout and Dublin Smith, but I still took a selfie with him. Okay. <laughs> well, that counts, I guess. Birthday present, real selfie. All Just right, a now, hint. now I, I know you're bursting to tell us this next story. Oh, I love this story. And I had actually heard of this. So this is the, um, it's called the Diagram Prize. Now, the Diagram, Diagram Prize, um, I, I believe it's run through the bookseller again, but it's a, the prize for the most peculiar book title and um they've just uh, announced their shortlist which includes um is superman circumcised that's on the list right 
Um, curves for the mathematically curious. That's not that weird. <laughs> um, a very unnatural history, the life cycle of Russian things. Really? Yeah. And a lot shorter under Putin, I'd imagine. I, I'm not sure if we're allowed to swear on the podcast, but Miss, I don't give a four-letter word for poo beginning with the letter S, engaging with challenging behaviour in schools, which is actually quite a serious book, oh, it yeah, turns yeah, absolutely. out. But... <laughs> Oh. Um, so I, I love this. I mean, you know, the dream is to get a Hobeck book title. So we need some strange book titles. The books can be, you know, they don't have to be strange in themselves, but it's the titles that are winning the awards. So um, the first ever winner went to Proceedings of the Second International Workshop on Nude Mice. Wow. <laughs> and apparently, um, according to the article I read about this, um, that the the... the the books that tend to win tend to be skirting sort of slightly naughty subjects. So nudity or, um, you know, rude words, things like that. They tend to get the most votes. I, I think we're going to do... So I Ma think Superman is going to win. Well, yeah, maybe. Malcolm Rutherford ate my hamster or something like that. <laughs> would be a good Hobart book. Anyway, well, thank you for that. Um, I, I don't... Really know what to say. Well, well, then we should follow with an interview, shouldn't we? We should. Let's speak to Helen Gray. Helen is an editor for Hobeck. She has worked with Malcolm Hollingdrake for not only the books that he did for us, which is, of course, the Merseyside Crime series, but also the Harrogate series, which uh, has book 11, need I say, came out uh, a week ago or so, doing extremely well. So uh, worth looking at. So we've also extended um, that relationship by hooking um, Helen up with um, Harry Fisher, who has his second novel with us out next week, Way Beyond the Lie. Yes, indeed. So Be Sure Your talk... Sins is already out and Way Beyond the Lie. And um, so a lot of what we discussed with Helen is that sort of the nature of the relationship working with Hobeck authors, but also in general terms, how she started her career and the things she's learned along the way. And she got a random question, of course. Of course. So let's speak to Helen Gray. Thank you so much for joining us, Helen Gray, joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Hello, it's nice to be here. Yeah, we're very uh, excited to be speaking to you because one of the things that uh, as publishers we spend a lot of time doing is choosing very carefully who to match with our authors in terms of editing. Um, so that's one consideration. And then I suppose there's the other thing at the back end of the process is picking the author off the, off the floor when they <laughs> figure out when they get their comments back and they realise yeah. they're not quite as sharp as they think they are. Um, but anyway, let's, 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 let's delve into it first. Um, and your sort of editing career, when did it start and how did it start? Well, um, I, I kind of fell into it accidentally, really. Um, when I first got married, um, I moved to the Northwest and I have a degree in history, so I'm used to writing, but at an academic level. Um, and I was used to dealing with a lot of written material. And we, we had our first child quite quickly. And at the time, this was about 20 years ago, um, you could do correspondence courses that were subsidized by the government. So I found one that I could do whilst being pregnant at home. I wasn't very well when I was pregnant. So 
um, I did this correspondence course in proofreading and copy editing. And it only cost me 25 pounds and the rest was subsidized. So that's how I first um, learned how to proofread and do all the symbols and the markings. And after that, I, I got my certificate from that. But then I, I didn't really get um, a full-time job. Um, I just did some, I did, I volunteered for um, a company and did some work on a voluntary basis. Then uh, after a bit, they started to give um, payments for that. And I did work for people who, who knew us and people, I, I did um, somebody's thesis and I can't even remember what it was about. It was ages ago, but I, I did quite random pieces of work really. Um, and it was actually only just a few years ago um, that I happened to meet another author who you know. <laughs> Would that be Malcolm by any chance? <laughs> and um, he, he actually came to a book club that I go to here in Wigan. And we, we were talking about his books and I then, and at that, I was able to talk about what it's like as a proofreader, as an editor, and how I approached that, and what I, the, the relationship between the author and someone who's checking their work. Well, he, he seemed to like what I was saying, and I have done quite a bit of work for him with quite a few of his books ever since, really. And then that has led me to get to know you. So, um, and I've also, in the meantime, I've done a variety of other bits of work and non-fiction and fiction. And so uh, I, I've done all, all different genres really, um, but I do like fiction. I like working with fiction. Yeah. So I'm interested, you know, you're talking about the, the correspondence course and how you learned the, the essential syntax of oh, the markings of, of proofreading. Like... <laughs> Do you still use that? Because now electronically, it's it's not as necessary as it as it once was. Is it, or is that am I being uh, am I jumping the gun there by saying that? I do use the markings with some people. It, it depends because I mean I find some people they like to do everything on the computer, and it is very different now on the computer. And it, um, you, you're working directly into the text, aren't you? So mm. it's, it's different. Other people are not that keen on using the computer and they want to have pieces of paper. And there are advantages to both. Um, and I will work with whatever people prefer to work with. So if an author likes to have their, their manuscript, the, or, or however many pages, then I'll work on the pieces of paper and whatever um that's fine so and so sometimes i do use some of the markings with authors but if it's directly into the text on the computer it, it's a different kettle of fish now um the skills, it's almost like it's like completely on. different isn't it because um i remember um my first week at oxford university press my boss she sat me down with a sheet of paper with all the markings on and she said you need to learn these and I can remember looking at them thinking, crikey, all that sort of these little symbols and they all had a specific meaning. But 
it, it sort of becomes natural after a while. I still use the markings if I'm marking up on paper. I still yeah. do. Use them. I've noticed that, and I, you know, it's anathema to me because <laughs> look, I, I when I went to journalism school uh, in the uh, mid mid nineties, uh, they forced us to learn T line uh, shorthand. <laughs> and um well they fought they tried to force us anyway about six weeks into the course because i was doing broadcast journalism completely different discipline really to the written guys and i said look um i've got to be got to be honest here i can't see a practical application for this because everything i do is either going to involve a camera or a tape recorder and do i really need this well then they said well if you go court reporting haha uh, then you'll need it there. And uh, I said, but is it optional for a broadcast? And then it, when it turned out it was, I was the first to leave. And then only about <laughs> two people from the broadcast course of 30 of us bothered to learn T-Line. Um, and I don't regret it at all. But it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the, you know, that was a traditional way of doing things. Yeah. And uh, I think some of the traditions are still very much alive. Like the, the proof markings I find really useful. So I know a lot of what we do is on the, on the screen now. Mm. And it, like Helen was saying, you know, it is completely different sort of language. But every now and then there'll be a, a book cover that you need to proofread and it's printed out on paper. So the markings are vital then. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. they may, if you know them, they make sense. But I know that some of our authors have, have used the markings and they've said, oh, what's that little squiggle mean? Well, well I guess if you reverse <laughs> engineer it, if you don't know those markings, then you don't know what you're looking for in terms of the the very nitty-gritty of the proofread mm. because you've got if by learning those symbols and what they mean you now know what you're looking out for yeah actually that's an interesting point it does help because you have in your head the the bold the italic the underline the um you know the, the thing for reducing space as a symbol for increasing space is all different yeah. <laughs> small caps even yeah. has right, the same well, symbol doesn't maybe it maybe i shouldn't be so disrespectful <laughs> anyway so you've learned those and of course that then sinks in I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here you know it underlines the things that you're doing when you, but proofreading and structural editing and decopy editing all completely different disciplines aren't they they are and they build on one another don't they so so sometimes people have just said to me, all I want you to do is proofread. Um, so that would be checking for the, the spelling, punctuation and grammar errors, the presentation errors, if, if the font is, suddenly goes into a different style, a different size and the line spacings, it's, it would be that kind of thing. And then as you build up through the editing, then you're, you're looking at different things and your, your feedback is going to get more involved. I, that's what I find. Um, but I, I love it. I love doing the copy editing and the editing and and being able to have a conversation with the author beyond beyond just saying, oh, there were there weren't that many mistakes. You know that that's that's a necessary part of any publication process. But I you know it doesn't engage me in the same way that editing engages me and. I love being, once I've gone through a piece of work, even if, even if it is something that's quite academic um, in, its, in its style, because that's it, it, it is an academic text, and that, that what you're looking for then is very different to um, fiction. But I love then being able to just talk to the author and say that, that, that was great. And I, you know, and 
and talk about what, what I thought was good and, and sometimes the, the bad things as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's tricky sometimes, but it's really important that you, you be able to do that with, with a writer because you don't want to get it published and then get loads of <laughs> either terrible sales or dreadful feedback and terrible reviews. I mean, I think you make a good point there because you're almost like a cipher. So you're sort of preventing that negative feedback. So you might have to have a difficult conversation with the author. I don't know, you've used far too many adverbs or something like that. But I I, I think sometimes they do feel a bit um, tetchy about this, but they always appreciate it when they've been through the process. That's the feedback I get from our authors is, Mm. you know, I thought my book was great, but now I'm not so sure. They they do sort of get quite emotional about it. But then once they've been through it and they reread it and they they see the points that you're making and then they say, actually, that was really good for me. <laughs> yeah, because authors with fiction, they're living, breathing, sometimes sleeping in this, this story. And it's that they know it all. They know their characters really well. They know what's going on with it. But... From a reader's point of view, there might be bits that just don't make quite enough sense or don't don't add up. Or when you read the sentence, you just think, what? <laughs> What's that yes. talking about? And, and it's important that an editor can pick that up and identify that. And some, sometimes I find I'm going through a manuscript and I'll have this, this bit and I think there's something wrong with this. I can't quite put my finger on what it is but it's not sitting right so I know it can be better what is it and sometimes I have to just if it's on paper I'll put a, a post-it on that page and I'll come back to it later if it's if it's in the computer program that you can just mark it in some way and come back to it later and eventually I find, I find what happens I'll have a break go off do something else maybe have to do some more work on the manuscript and then come back to it and suddenly I'll realise I know exactly what is wrong with that and I know how we can fix it. So that I, I really enjoy that process and then being able to rework something and, and then have a conversation with an author and say, look, this, this part here, what, what did you want to do with it? What, what was your purpose here? And find out how they're thinking and then... I find I can say to them, right, okay, well, if that's what you're, you're trying to do, what, the way it was originally, it wasn't quite working. How about trying it like this? What about rewording it? And I remember one author, he, uh, that it, was, it was something at the beginning. And sometimes the beginning of a book, if, if you get the beginning wrong, it, oh, yeah. it can really spoil it, can't it? You've got to have it right. So we were, I was looking at this beginning, this prologue, and uh, it wasn't sitting right with me at all. And it felt like we jumped right into the middle of a story rather than something that was to almost set the scene. And I was thinking about it for ages and ages. And eventually I thought, okay, we're just gonna have to rewrite this from a different point of view. And I, I find that some authors they, they don't realise that the vast array of tools that they have open to them when it comes to narrative styles. So I, for, for, for helping this author, I rewrote part of this beginning 
in a different narrative style to show this author what I meant. But it was it was using almost all of their own words, but just in a different way. And yeah. they were sat there reading it and they said, well, it sounds like I wrote it. And I said, well, <laughs> good. <laughs> it's supposed to sound like you wrote it because these are your words, but we're just using the language in a different way. And and placing yourself as a writer in a different um, position amongst your characters. So if you if you think of first person, most people know what first person is, yeah. where, where you're talking, you know, I, I, I. So that's that's in that person's head, isn't it? But if you take go out of that and go into third person, then it's he and she and they but that's a different position so from a writing point of view you can do different things you can describe a bit more and then there's another style where you can be quite limited in your point of view there's another style that where it's called omniscient so you can it's where the writer knows absolutely everything about everything and everybody and that can come through in the writing. So you might be able to, to tell your writers, your readers, sorry, the, the history of something, which maybe the characters may not know. Um, so there's, there's different styles available to writers and they don't always realize what they can do with language. So I find that my role as an editor sometimes is just pointing them to perhaps a different style. Mm. Um, and getting them to experiment a bit with it really and, and write write in a different way and it's amazing the results that that can bring so i i really enjoy things like that <laughs> the way absolutely laying those challenges down and it's interesting because i've experimented with a lot of those and um for every advantage that certain style will give you it gives you a disadvantage so for instance yeah. first person um a book i was writing was mostly starts in the first person and then because it's a wider thriller it's got to have a bit of a third person feel so, so you can do the you know he's in, being pursued by the uk government and secret services and whatever else i couldn't insert them um because uh, you know if i'd stayed with first person i couldn't put it in because he wasn't experiencing what they were up to no uh, all the way along. <laughs> otherwise it would just be constantly one big battle um mm. you know there's no chase element so that that was a, a, a an issue and I, I know that when we've spoken to look, we've spoken to dozens of authors now on this podcast in the 43 episodes so far. And some prefer to go into the first person. They feel very comfortable there. And then they'll challenge themselves in the next book to go third. Uh, there's other occasions where they'll slip between the two or they use three different first yeah, person the narratives same book, to tell yeah. the story. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it is. Uh, there's uh, so many wide ranging uh ways of approaching it yeah is that you yeah. or me it's not me i do apologize that's, okay. that's instagram in my pocket <laughs> <laughs> trying to sell me vegetables we'll keep that in for texture that was lovely i thought you were playing the piano while <laughs> conducting yeah, thought, an interview yeah, I, was, yeah. I think i was very no i was thinking helen was playing the no, piano that's, well, no it wouldn't be me that's for sure well, you know, the piano is over there but my, my arms are not quite long enough to reach. It is over there. And behind me on the floor here, I've got a double bass because one of our children plays the double bass. 
Oh, fantastic. And I've got a music stand sticking into my side here. <laughs> <laughs> so are you quite a musical family then? We are. We are. I can play the clarinet as well. My other son plays the guitar. And my husband can play the piano and he does percussion instruments as well. So in the other room, there's a xylophone. <laughs> I like xylophones. I know, you want a glockenspiel for I Christmas, want, don't I you? want a glockenspiel, yeah, for, for Christmas or my birthday, whichever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it made me think of primary school because we had a big wooden I want to get you a marimba because that, that would be, that'd be oh, really yeah. cool. You know, world, world music instrument of the marimba. Yeah. You know. <laughs> foundation of some of my favorite african music there we go well we didn't expect to go down that no, uh, we've digressed a little bit no, no, but... but it's an interesting thing okay so this is this is uh, you know this is tangential but i i often think that the best prose is written with a melody with a rhythm there's a there's an you know the, the stuff that really blows you away i mean you know there's plenty of functional authors and we deal with them and we you know we we uh you know that where the story is all and whatever you write serves the story mm. but then there's the elevated bit where it becomes poetic and the sentence i think of mick heron who's writing in a genre spy genre but writes such beautiful sentences as well everything is you know he, he's got he's a real stylist and yes, i think, that, I think there's an a, element if you, it's a if style you, if you have i mean i played flute and sang and all those sort of things and um I think there's an element of that coming through when I write a little bit, a tiny weeny bit. But I think similar for me, I think it's it's having that other creative element to your personality. With your art, so yeah. with the art. So and you, what I, I think it's very interesting, actually, what you're saying about music is you have a sense of the flow of words and the choice of words. <laughs> so does that does that ring true with you? It does. And it's funny because when you read authors, you, you do get to know their voice, don't you? Mm, and absolutely. You, I mean, when I when I start work on an author I've never worked with before, it takes me a while. It, you know, I re start reading through the manuscript and I might have to go back to the beginning and yeah. start again because it does take a bit to get into the the style of, the, of that author and you 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 have to learn quickly because you can't you can't spend hours and hours thinking about this this because <laughs> you've got to get through the work but you do have to get to know how does this author write how do they communicate how do they express themselves and I, I it's interesting how I, I mean but then everybody's individual and so you would ex, you know it, you'd expect everyone to to write in their own way but you you do have to get used to well how, how are they gonna describe this it comes comes across most when people start describing things so some authors go off into very lengthy <laughs> long-winded descriptions um which may or may not work and other authors just want to give the, the minimum description um to quickly get it in the reader's head. So there are, there are different styles, aren't there? And it, you, you have to just work out where, where, where is this author? And then you're able to then edit it better. Yeah. And, and yeah, you, you also then, you have to make a judgment call sometimes as an editor. Do, it, do I leave that or not? And <laughs> yes. um, sometimes you need to change something and sometimes you can get away with leaving it. So you, so you have to use your, your judgment sometimes, don't you? And 
I think the judgment, I mean, this is true when we're looking at manuscripts that are coming in as submissions. So we've got, as I say, we had 54, 55 submissions in September, um, you know, and the doors remain closed now for a few months. But it's interesting, yeah, getting the voice, if if it jumps out at you and you feel, you know, you're in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve, that makes that is the key thing. If you're looking because we look at three chapters, synopsis and a covering letter and all three things give some sort of indication as to whether it's worth persevering and i must admit when you're faced with 55 manuscripts there's a lot of reading you you, you, you get you know once you've got half a dozen really good ones that you really can't wait to read the rest of then it's much harder for the rest you know who might be further down the slush pile to get past you because i haven't got the patience if i'm brutally honest um, if something is like written, I had one the other day and I'm not going to name names, but it was very much three pages of exposition from the author's point of view, setting out that so-and-so was married to such and such and they had three children and they lived in a such and such. And then in 1947, they moved to la la la. And I just went, this is not going to appeal to anybody. I'm sorry. I just can't go there um, because this reads like the background story that you've written. You should write, you know, if if that's your style, write it off screen mm. drop it in your notes your where's the action where's the moment where's the inciting incident where's the character coming through where's the dialogue something else that i find very wearing is three or four pages without a simple simple line of dialogue yes i, I find mean, you, that... you wouldn't like <laughs> sally rooney then no <laughs> and i don't <laughs> i don't um i know that's heresy nowadays but no i don't um and 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 so you know, I mean, maybe maybe I'm being harsh because it's my peccadillo. But I think what you said about getting this piece of description across quickly, as opposed to deciding whether a longer bit has, has earned its keep, I would always, uh, if you can do it in two lines or even a line, do that, especially in the sort of genres that we're writing or publishing. Yeah, it is very very genre important important for this genre particularly yeah we're not i mean in literary fiction of course yeah they're much more experimental as well so oh sorry yes. i'm <laughs> I, I really formed a question here but but, also, but don't you find it's the pace of the writing as well because some, some writing it could almost send you to sleep and yes with with, with crime I, I i like working with with crime fiction a lot but you've got to you've got to keep it moving you can't you can't let your readers fall asleep on it and sometimes writers they, they get they get too involved sometimes with with trying to do a wonderful description or whatever and you just think oh come on you know in the meantime that that guy's running running away down an alley or something <laughs> that's true yeah let's make it let's make it sound and feel for the reader as if they're they're there and if there's if there's a chase if there's some action let, let's put the reader in that make them feel mm. that rather than just observe it uh, as if oh you know that's a very yeah. nice thing happening down there you know let, let's put the reader in it and and it 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 transforms a manuscript when you when you write like that so, so if if somebody's got to do a, a very fast journey, rather than just saying, "Oh, we we put our foot down and drove there really quickly," you can write it so that it's like, 
foot down, fast, left, right. Oh no, there's a red, red light, screech to a halt, you know, make, convey that in the writing yeah. rather yeah. than it being this long, complete <laughs> sentence. You know, you, we, you, we can use language to convey the feeling and the, the tempo and the speed. And the Which emotion of, of the person behind the wheel and the people in the vehicle. Yeah, because that's how you think when when you're in that situation. You do think, oh, left, oh, I've got to go right. Oh. Well, isn't it interesting? Because, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we take a lot of journeys. And, and <laughs> I mean, you're this is the thing with Rebecca, right? So Rebecca will be buried in her laptop or a book. All journeys. Yeah, I, I read. Seven hours from like, Scotland or whatever Talking of be. Sally Rooney, I read half of her book on the way back from Suffolk. Right. <laughs> and I've been at the wheel for five, six hours trying to keep us from being dead uh, and <laughs> but i trust through... you so i don't need to concentrate right. on you and you look up and go we're home <laughs> that was easy and um and i've lived every moment of the blinking journey you know yeah. But, yeah. but it's interesting that in in literature you should i mean you should you know journeys are rarely um that interesting you know <laughs> only only pick out the points where uh you know there's there's an opportunity maybe it's an opportunity for someone to rest so you might put that in it might be an opportunity yeah. for someone to have a that private conversation they've not had a chance to have a breather over and put a couple of points that changes yeah. the direction of the story well, this is quite interesting because yesterday i was i had an email exchange with malcolm who we all know and i told him about your seven hour m6 epic and mm. he said there's a short story in that story there so <laughs> yeah okay so just to, to fill helen and the rest of the audience of what happened uh i was heading off to see my son play golf um up, up you know and it's i went seven hours at one junction of the m6 because there had been an air ambulance multi-pile pile up at junction 16 and so i just limped home at 5 30 or something like that knackered uh whether i haven't gone to the toilet nothing to eat i was <laughs> i was in a foul mood um, and you could have murdered someone. Story. There you yeah, go. well, I could have murdered the, the, <laughs> the, these Polish lads who kept jumping out of their van, and they were having a kickabout in between the vehicles. I think you. And just... then the car, the cars would move forward. They jump back in, and then they get out again and have a kickabout. It was ridiculous. You've just written your first crime novel. Right, possibly, possibly. <laughs> but I've got great respect for the Polish nation. And Helen's going to edit it for us. <laughs> yeah, she's going to need to. Um, no, but I, I think that 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 self that self editing of realizing where something is prosaic and just needs to be you know, go on to the next action point or the next key moment of stress, difficulty, you know, revelation. That's the, that's the, the joy of it. But I wonder whether, I mean, this is my, in my head, that with a crime book, you've got about 30% of the book in which you can dwell and slowly build up the forces and the, the momentum and the clues and all that. And then after that, it's just got to get to the end and you've got to deliver. Does that, does that seem fair? Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. And you and you build up well you but writers build up their red herrings, don't they? Um mm. and I find them sometimes it can be tricky because they, they can sometimes have their own story. And I often find I have to say to someone, Well, look, this is a red herring, this isn't your main character, is it? Or is it? Do you want it to be a main character? Um, or uh, uh, um, when are you going to finish dealing with that character? You know, if, if, if it's to confuse the reader, if it's to give an alternative idea as to who did it or why, well, how are you going to bring that in? How is it going to fade out of the story? Is it going to 
just abruptly end in the story. And the way writers deal with their red herrings has to be handled carefully because otherwise it can take over from the, the, main, the main theme or the main characters and the main plot line. So that, that, that's another interesting thing that I think writers need to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, because you know, but, but you don't, you don't think that much about the red herrings. I think as a writer, but well, I don't know. I think I think you do. I mean, I I, I agonise over them because I haven't got enough of them. That's what, so I mean. It's it, yeah, it's quite it's quite challenging to get it right. So I think is what I'm trying to say with the red herrings. Yeah, and there's nothing worse than I think uh, like a finish of a crime novel, and it's been somebody who hasn't even been mentioned yeah. um, all the way <laughs> through. Right. You've got to lay, you've got to lay the that first clue in the first twenty, thirty pages. I mean, or introduce the character that did it in some yeah. way. And usually, um, I think when I was narrating um, certain books, the uh, the trick was, and this is what Scott Brick, who's a great narrator, the probably the best in the world, arguably, he's an American narrator, he's done thousands of them, and he says. Don't forget, the bad guy is almost certainly going to be the really nice person at the beginning of the book. <laughs> so a bit like um, Scooby-Doo, you know, it was always the nice caretaker at the beginning or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? um, so you've got to have wiggle room. You can't obviously make them sound, you know, sinister, uh, insincere and whatever at the beginning, because that's not going to be a big reveal at the end. So there's mm. a there's a narration trick there. Yeah, yeah. It's tricky. I'm surprised, though. Rebecca, that you can read so much in the car because I just get travel sick. I couldn't do that at all. So I'm, just, I'm just very lucky. I don't get seasick, travel sick, anything sick. Don't you? Wow. <laughs> she gets sick <laughs> of me. But actually, I was, I was going to ask um, so, you know, you spend a lot of your working life reading and thinking, and, you know, sort of, you've got a lot of analysis going on in your head about literature. Do you find when you're reading for pleasure that you naturally turn into editor mode? Sometimes I do. But see, I, I tend to read for pleasure when I'm it's the end of the day. I might, you know, go to go to bed, need to get into sleep mode. And that's my reading for pleasure time, really. Um, and usually I can do it quite well, except sometimes I read and particularly with, with the book club that I go to we get given these books and sometimes they are just dreadful <laughs> just, <laughs> and, I, and I'll sit there and lie there thinking good grief and but I think partly it's because the the libraries get given um uncorrected proof copies oh so yeah, yeah. full of mistakes absolutely full of mistakes and it really irritates me. Um, sometimes I can't carry on reading it because I, I, I do start to, it, it, it just annoys me too much. And I just think my, my brain is now going into a editing mode rather than a relaxing mode. So, I can't, so if, it's, if it's really dreadful, I'll have to just stop. <laughs> but and I, think, I think that's the downside of those, those uncorrected proof copies um it's, just, it's not just me that, that gets annoyed by it. other people in the book club who who are not proofreaders or or editors at all but they can spot the mistakes the mistakes just jump out at you and 
stupid mistakes. So um, I don't think it, it helps if there's if there's uncorrected proof copies sent out that I know I know they do it for marketing. Um, yeah, it's because it's a time because it they they have something ready in advance and they're you know they're hoping to get feedback and reviews yeah. and. Well, it's interesting because yeah. we're, we're we're working on the basis now of, of lengthening our time between sort of first manuscripts arriving and and publication simply because the publicity machine is were and indeed the the bookshops work months slower than the traditional indie market where you can just put it up on amazon when it's finished and and get it out there um but if you want to get into bricks and mortar store or, or featured in a magazine or a newspaper you've got to give them time because they're working months ahead um and so i think there is that feeling that you know well okay it's nearly there it's kind of you know it'll change a bit and we'll no doubt weed out the mistakes but let's stick it out there and um, get people reading it mm. um it's, it's tricky getting it is right it is really difficult but difficult i'm I, I agree with you i get very irritated if i'm reading oh totally <laughs> it, it takes you out of the manuscript but helen um when you're taking you know looking at a project someone's offered you a project do you ever get to the point where do you know what I just can't bring myself to edit this. Uh, either send it back and say, "Look, I'm sorry, I, I've you know whatever you might use as an excuse." I mean, I'm I'm saying that because recently I was approached by a a, a romance writer who said, uh, "Look, I'm really I love your voice. I want you to narrate my new series and all this sort of thing." And then she sent me the manuscript or some of it, and it was just it was like Yoda had written it. Everything was in the wrong order. <laughs> I couldn't. I just couldn't narrate it without putting a Yoda voice on. It was appalling. Um, I haven't actually told her yet this, so she's probably listening. But anyway, um, you know, I couldn't do it. I, I professionally didn't want to put my name to it. Is, mm. is bottom line. Do you ever get that situation? Not very often. Um, occasionally, in fact, I can. I can. I can. I can only think of one time where I've actually said to somebody, I don't think I'm the right person for that. Um, I, I will, I'll have a good go at, at most stuff that, that people offer me, but it, but it is, it's hard to say, it's hard to say no, especially yeah. when you're self-employed as well. Yes, um, I feel that. Because <laughs> that, you, you're thinking, well, you know, it's work. It seems foolish to turn down something that someone's but offering. But is there any... Do you have well, thresholds? Is there a taste and decency threshold, or you know? Yes, I think I think for me it would be the content, and if I was uncomfortable in any way with, with some of the content, then that would be for me. I think what what would sway me on it. Mm. Um, but it, it is it's a tricky one, and it's and it's hard, isn't it, to say no to the person? Because it can be easy in an email to turn. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. But to actually speak face to face or on, you know, on the phone, that's hard, isn't it? No, it's difficult. Yeah. But I think I think your line of reasoning there is is very valid because I've had a similar situation where somebody it was um, I'm registered with Readsy as an editor, and somebody had sent me a sample of their work, and um, it it just wasn't ready for editing. It was just that they needed to reread it and reread it and revise it themselves first. And I I did say that I said, you know, I. I, you would be paying far too much money to have some and somebody edit this at this stage because it would be almost rewritten and so my advice is to go back and and go through it again and you know a couple of times yourself and didn't hear from them again but <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it yeah you've got to draw a line somewhere haven't you 
I mean, that's, have, that's, yeah. that's it. You've got to stand for something. Yes. Yeah. And like you say, if your name is going to be associated with something, you've got to be comfortable with that, haven't you? And yeah. And if it, bothers, if it bothers you before it's gone out there and before it's even been printed, then it's it's unlikely to change, isn't it? So you've, you've got to right. have that peace. Yeah. Let's um let's draw it back into the Hobart family. So you explained how you met Malcolm Hollingdrake and mm. you know your long-standing editing you know writer relationship with and him. he actually recommended you to us, didn't he? Indeed, so and he, indeed, he was then, very praising. Absolutely, and <laughs> then we've uh, partnered up with with Harry Fisher, whose second yeah. or his first novel, but our second from that we published with Hobart, mm. Way Beyond a Lie, is out this week. Um, so. I mean, in terms of striking up a relationship, somebody who's already got those books out there, but we put through an editing process to perhaps, you know, add an extra layer of awareness, polish, challenges, writing, that sort of stuff. How did that relationship develop? Well, um, I, I, I just said, first of all, we, we emailed to sort of say, hello. <laughs> and I, my first email was basically, I think it was a basically along the lines of, hello, I'm, I'm the person who's going to edit your book. Um, and, but we, we spoke on the phone quite regularly and I found him very easy to talk to. Um, and and I, I just think it, this might sound... It might sound very basic and simplistic, but I just think if you are respectful and honest, mm. then you can you can work with people, you know. And and I think that, and that's how I that's how I approach working with, with every author. And and that I found with working with Harry, there was a mutual respect, and he was absolutely delighted that the book was being edited because some of the other publishers that he had um, come across, he was aware that they weren't going to do any editing. And he really wanted to have that full editing experience as part of, of it being published because he, he, he knew that his book would be better as a result. And I think because of his, because of his approach to it like that, um, we, we, got on, we got on very well. So we were able to have quite frank and honest discussions about all the points that I raised. And then he would come back to me with other questions. Um, so we, we got on well, yeah. Um, which is why we could continue working together, I think, through, through the, the books that I've worked on. Um, because I mean, it, it, if as an editor, you don't get on with the author and you can't, you can't have that conversation about the work, then it's an absolute non-starter. You cannot continue to work with someone because no. you've, got to, you've got to be able to talk to one another. You've got to be able to converse. And, and I, I think uh, the way I approach it, every, every book I work on is the author's book. It's not my book, it's their book. And it's their work. And I understand that it's like their baby. It's their thing. And although every writer I've ever met says to me that by the time it's got to editing, they're sick of it. Yes. <laughs> sick of it. It's like, take this book away from me. But then once they start to get the feedback from editing, it reignites them. And 
they get going on it again and they get inspired again and they get excited again about it. And that's, that's what you need in the editing process. And working with Harry, we were able to, to work like that. And sometimes um, I would listen to his opinions and his, his views and his reasonings. And I would say, okay, that's fine. Yep, let's, let's leave it then. That's fine. I get, I get what you're trying to do. That's fine. And sometimes in fiction, you can get away with things that if it was an academic thing, you, you wouldn't do at no. all. But um, other times I would have to say to him, well, I hear what you're saying, but actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to do, we need to change it. And, and we had enough respect and honesty to be able to work together. Um, and that's, that's what you need. That's good. And you're actually booked for the next book, which um, we're expecting um, early next year. So even better. Yeah. And Harry's yeah. got an idea for book four already. So yeah, <laughs> I think it's going to be a constant. I'm sure that's part of the, part of the impact you've had. Um, no, he was very, part. very praising as well. So Absolutely. Yeah, and he's been looking to other Hoebeck authors for advice and reading them and, and finding ways yeah. to challenge himself to be a better author. Yeah, he wants to be better. And yeah, I so, love that about absolutely. some of our well, authors, a sort of striving. Well, when to... I was with in broadcasting, that's what I looked for in my in my staff was somebody who had a desire to get better and find the extra 1% yeah. of London. Yeah, so they, yeah, so that's, that's don't, you don't think sign. you've reached the, the high point of your talent, no, you know? No, no. Absolutely, yeah. there's always some growth. Yeah. As Abby Just like you. Was, yeah, <laughs> outwards in my case. Uh, listen, I think it's time to get to the Rebecca's random question. Oh, yeah. Me. Yes, of course. Or shall I give it the big build-up? You should give it the big build-up. Okay, here we go, ready. Rebecca's random question. Okay, I'm going to give you a choice of two special skills. You can either stop time at will at any point you like to, for however long you like to, or read people's minds. What would you choose and why? Oh, that's a good oh. one. God, that's got oh. There's two books in there. Yes, well, I don't think I would like to read people's minds. I think that that would be very uncomfortable. Um, I think I would have to stop time. And I think it would be when, if, you know, if we were on holiday somewhere, somewhere really lovely, um, as a family and it's yeah those special family times the weather wouldn't even have to be great it would just be yeah. us together as a family so you get to away. Time. and that special yeah. moment everything's harmonious and, yeah like christmas yeah. day yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, the problem is that this Christmas Day is particularly special because it's Rebecca's 50th. I'm going to be 50 on Christmas Day. So I'm not our, cooking In anything. case our loyal audience didn't already know this, and uh, she's expecting to be festooned with presents from the from the podcast audience. Podcast, uh, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'm not cooking. Not even a slither of turkey I'm going to cook. So when you were a child, Rebecca, did you really hate having your birthday on Christmas Day? Um, I confess actually no because I got a lot of sympathy and I love that (laughs) (laughs) I used to I used to get quite upset if people sent me a Christmas card and put oh and happy birthday in it though and if my presents were wrapped in Christmas paper oh no I didn't like that (laughs) I am I have been warned Um, 
I've been putting great deal of thought into it. Not a lot of action, but a lot of thoughts into it. <laughs> well, there was, there was one year where um, we decided to have my birthday on Boxing Day. I think it was about 10 or 11. And the idea seemed really good, but actually I didn't like it because I missed the attention that I got on Christmas Day itself. So I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> I get more presents than everybody else and I get drunker than everybody else. It's, it's great. <laughs> you do, you do realise you're turning 50, not five. You sound like you're fine. I still love Christmas, yeah. eh? I still love it. Okay, sorry. I've been, that was rather rude. I'm sorry. And I apologize about that. Well, to the audience as well, and to you, Helen. Oh, I thought it was a compliment. Being, no, no, I was being horrible. Um, oh, I took it as a compliment. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Helen, great. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I think um, the last 40 minutes or so has proven uh, that, that um, maxim uh, that people say that uh, to write, uh, what was it? To edit is divine um i can't remember the rest of it it's something goes. about to write well or something to write well yeah, yeah but to edit is divine and i think you've proved it um absolutely so thank it's... you so much for your time there's a lot of really interesting perspectives there and i think a lot of people will learn a, a great deal from it and no doubt be beating a path uh, to your door can i just well. ask one last question would you ever write a book oh i don't know i don't know i i find it quite hard to pluck things out of the air and write i i've I find it easier to work on what someone else has written yeah. than, than come up with with fresh ideas myself. So I don't know. Although, I, I when I was a young teenager, I did try and write a book, and it wasn't great. <laughs> it's one of those I'll never see the light of day. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's in the drawer and it's not coming out. <laughs> That's right. Yes, it's a bit embarrassing now. I feel embarrassed about it, but. I did that. I did send it to a publisher. I sent it to Scholastic. Oh yeah. Which which published um, they published a range called Point Horror, which kind of tells you the kind of story <laughs> it was. But um, they they wrote back to me a really very nice letter oh. saying no, but in a very nice way, and they encouraged me to carry on writing and to carry on reading because they felt that this is funny because I've forgotten all about this. They, they wrote in the letter, they felt that I would have a future with, um, with writing. Well, you so did. Isn't that, isn't that funny? And you did. And I have, yes. Just not in the way I thought I did when I was 13. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. I don't tell many people that now. Now it's going to be out into the whole world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, to the tens of millions of people listening to the podcast. <laughs> Uh, well, look, Helen, you, you, you know, we've, we've delved deep. We've, we've got some big, big questions and big answers there, but that's the biggest of all, the biggest revelation of the lot. <laughs> uh, um, thank you for your candour and for your time. Thanks, Helen Thank Gray. you. Okay. Bye. Helen Gray. And, of course, she has edited Way Beyond a Lie, which is out this week and Tuesday. So do look out for Harry Fisher's latest novel. And that leads very nicely to the next thing. Yes. Let's hear from Harry himself about how... It is to be edited and working with Helen. Way Beyond a Lie is was my debut um, crime thriller, as you know. Um, but you guys are using it as a prequel to Be Sure Your Sins because it introduces Mel and Andrew, or DS Mel, Melissa Cooper, and Detective Constable Andrew Young, her sidekick. Um, I started writing Way Beyond a Lie in 2014 
um, finished it round about 2017, or at least it was finished to the point then when I thought I was happy with it. I submitted it to literary agents, didn't have any success, and so I decided that I would self-publish. And eventually it was released in March of 2019. I had a lot of help from a lot of people, and by the end I was you know, really quite proud of, of Way Beyond the Lie. And it's been extremely well received. Um, as you know, it's got over 150 reviews on Amazon. More than 100 of those are five star and it's rating 4.6 out, uh, out of five stars. So I'm absolutely delighted with it. So that's kind of the story. As, as I said, it's being used as a, as a prequel to Be Sure Your Sins, which is the first book where Mel and Andrew are the, um, are the lead roles. What did I learn from working with Helen? What value did I get? Just loads. I think a lot of it was affirmation that I was on the right uh, on the right lines. I was already happy with the you know the writing style. I'd I'd written way beyond a lie and then be sure your sins. So I'd settled into a style. Um, and I think the key thing apart from the affirmation is learning and understanding the value of all the editing work that I had put in, all the checks and things that I'd done, the input from several others, beta readers, um, people who looked at the quality of writing, people who looked at the the storyline to make sure that um, you know it held it held water. Uh, and so what eventually went forward to Helen was a fairly clean copy, and that was what I submitted to you. And I, you know, I remember you saying that you were, well, impressed. I guess is the is it the, the word I think you used with how clean a copy it was and how few errors um, appeared to be in there, at least until Helen got hold of it and found lots and lots of tiny little errors that uh, no one else had ever spotted. Um, she picked us up or picked me up on on a couple of. Uh, phrases that I'd used believing them to be correct and an example of that was back and forth. Well I said back and forth. Um, I don't know why, I just always thought that that was you know, right, but no it wasn't. So there were a few little things like that she picked up on. And one of the major changes that we made was to the start of chapters where I would maybe write a single sentence and then go into the second paragraph. And um, Helen combined a lot of those, so the chapters started with a full paragraph as opposed to a sentence. I saw the value in a lot of that. A couple of times I stuck to my guns and said, no, I'd rather keep that single sentence, and, and, um, and she was happy with that. Well, as far as building a relationship was, with Helen is concerned, I don't really think much building was needed. Uh, we seemed to hit it off um, straight away. Um, I remember Rebecca saying that not all editors um, want to speak directly to the authors, which I thought was bizarre. They wanted to go through the publisher. But Helen was keen um, to speak to me. I was keen to speak to her. I found her extremely easy uh, to talk to um, and willing to debate and discuss the points that she'd raised. So it's kind of an 80-20 rule. 80% 80 of the things that she said, I took on board straight away, changed them without a minute's hesitation. 
the other 20% we discussed it backwards and forwards um, and if I stuck to my guns maybe 5-10% of the time I think that would be all I would have done. Um, I found it an extremely easy relationship and you know, <laughs> I hope she does too. Next in line is, well it's the second, it's my book three but it's the second book of the Mel and Andrew Fool series. Um, it's called Yes, I Killed Her. Um, I've always been fascinated by the idea of the perfect murder. I know, I've cracked this bad joke before, it's probably been done to death. But these days with, you know, advances in forensic science, with CCTV absolutely everywhere, and our electronic footprint being, you know, as clear as a bell, um, the question is, is the perfect murder even remotely possible? I mean, if you take it, you know, you kill a person, stick the body in the back of your car and take it off somewhere to dump it, well, your car's going to be tracked all over the shop. So um, this is something I was very, very keen to explore, especially with today's technology. My murderer believes it is um, entirely possible to get away with it. Um, Mel Cooper begs to differ. And as it says at the end of the blurb, Game on. Harry Fisher's Way Beyond a Lie out on Tuesday, another one of the... It's a great book. And a little a... teaser for what's to come, too. Absolutely, yeah. Book three. It's in gestation. <laughs> it's more than in gestation. Yeah, not quite in editing yet, but it's, it's getting there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very exciting. Well, um, this week, I had a, a really good week in the studio, and um, it, it has been really bugging me, actually, and I, I know that for the, for the authors who are waiting for their books, it's, it's 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 frustrating too. But the bottom line is, since we had that awful illness where neither of us could really speak for for a couple of weeks, it's taken time to get my voice working again. But what I discovered, uh, you know, amazing what you can find on the internet. I found some some herbal tea which is designed to keep your voice going. But even better than that, from the same company, <laughs> um, maybe we should get them to sponsor the program. Uh, I'll give them a very brief plug vocal zone they do some um, some lozenges as well and i have gone from sort of being able to sort of stagger out of the studio after one hour mm -hmm. absolutely wrung out and getting three hours recorded now a day which is well i mean the only thing that that it's not my voice giving out it's it's the fact that i'm mentally stretched in the sense that you know, it takes a lot of concentration. You so, probably also need to be eating at that point as well. <laughs> yeah, so that has been revolutionary. So thank you, vocals. I mean, from my perspective, so you say I'm going in the studio and I'm I do some work. And it's about an hour later, and I think I'll be he'll be coming out in a minute, and then another half hour. Oh, he's probably coming out soon, surely. And then another hour goes by, mm. and then you appear. So yeah. I've noticed that the sort of the the length of time that well, you're able to spend Well, the productivity is huge. I mean, it now means there's a lot more stuff to edit, and that still takes the time. I mean, I think that the performance, going back to the audiobook discussion we had earlier, they say two hours in the studio for every hour finished. Yeah, that's about right, actually. Um, and some days you stumble more than others. Others mm -hmm. I can be very, very fluent, and it all sort of hangs together and it happens. But, um, yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. But then you've got to add in about another three to four hours of editing. Now, it, it, that sounds a bit daft in the sense you're just taking out the mistakes in theory, but actually it's not, it's not that at all because the added element of the editing 
is getting the pacing spot on. Now, you may not have done that in the performance because you were reading ahead on the sentence and you've paused a little longer to make sure you, you know what you're about to say or which character it is in the dialogue or whatever. And sometimes that's not always clear. But the bottom line is, is that what you do in the edit is you make every word work by putting the right length of pauses in between sections. You're taking out lots of breaths as well, because generally speaking, the public don't like them. It's quite understandably, don't want to hear what it's you, a bit too you, intimate, isn't it? Yeah, you've had for breakfast, and then there's the mastering, and that is another art in itself. And a lot of that is actually, I use AI for a lot of that. Um, it'll sample and listen to what I've done, and it'll reduce the sibilance mm. involved, and it will, you know, heighten and enhance certain frequencies so that you know you're a bit bassier than I mean, I don't usually have to face that problem. I was going to say, you're fairly bassy. Yeah, but also clarity and, um, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do to repair the audio. Um, I mean, sometimes, and it's a bit odd, really, um, when you're recording. It sounds all right in your headphones, and then when you come back to listen to it, it sounds a bit boxy. Mm. Uh, something, Something's not been quite right. The, the microphone was slightly off angle or something like well, that. Well, it's, it's a different way of listening. So the way that we hear ourselves now through the microphone and the – sorry, through the headphones – is going to naturally sound different to how when I listen to the podcast tomorrow. So mm. there is a difference that, you know, you can only perceive once you're editing. Yeah. And actually, that goes back to the performance side of things, because, you know, if you're a professional or full-time audiobook narrator working in London, in Soho, wherever they, they tend to record these things, you'll have a director and mm. you'll have an engineer and they'll be listening out for the, the, the vocal ticks and the problems. When you're doing it yourself, you're listening for that. And occasionally, I found this week, uh, I get a bit clicky. And that is to say that when you're, you know, your tongue gets stuck to the roof of the mouth and you click sounds, and uh, I mean, that's a bit dramatic. But, but <laughs> I was going to say, I felt But, you that. know, occasion, yeah, no, occasionally you get a slight, you know, you know that the line wasn't quite clear or there's going to be something you can't edit out, so you have to do it again. And so that's part of the mental process. You're trying to get ahead in the text. You're trying to deliver the thing, but you're also trying to critique your own performance as you do it. Mm. Oh, I do bang on about this, I know. But but it's, um, it's, it's, there's so many things you're concentrating on at, mm. at one time. And one thing that I, I've we, we realised, particularly this week, is when you're editing, you are concentrating to such a level that you, the, it's very difficult when there's things going on around you. Oh, so. well, we had a bit of a thing <laughs> this week, didn't but we? It, so I was trying to edit a particularly um, complicated... Well, let's put it this way. I hadn't performed the chapter to my usual standard, and I probably had, in certain sentences, five or six retakes. And sometimes I was going back not just over the sentence, but the whole paragraph. And there was a lot of... You, you were, We'd just come out from school, hadn't you we? You just came so. out from you doing washing up. Uh, boys were coming in Made and you out. Made you a coffee. You know, just jabbering away as they were, <laughs> making me coffee. And the noise was... And I had my head in my hands, like hands over my eyes almost to try and signal that I was trying to concentrate and it was just impossible and I got really snark snarky didn't I the, the difficulty is though we can't stop we can't stop no so we well, have we, to carry on until everyone's well, we don't happy have, we don't I mean I could come <laughs> in the studio and do it but it's not it, you know, it gets quite warm yes it's, and it's not ideal no really, no to do it here but I, mean, I think in future possibly I will have to do that but 
we don't have an office space to speak of no. uh, in the barn here in the in Hobeck Towers. We, we work at the kitchen table. We're a kitchen enterprise. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when the kitchen's being used for what it was designed for, there's a problem. Yeah. So, I mean, I I feel this too because – but I felt it acutely with you because it's – a like you just described the the different things you're concentrating on all at the same time. Um, it, it's almost like a, another level beyond concentration yeah. I might be doing. And I computer. found the noise around me invasive. And I also got the impression that everyone was trying to get my attention as well while I was yeah. trying to concentrate. And there was a bit of that. So, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't wasn't a happy moment uh, for the week. But we've had a, a, a very productive week. So let's look ahead to the Hobbit week to come. Uh, I think I'm going to be uh, in the studio a lot. Um, yeah. Because once you get momentum on a project, you will really want to see it through. And so I have, you know, a couple of books on the go, which uh, I, I would hope to finish in terms of recording uh, or get close to finishing by the end of the week if I get a good week. Brilliant. And and I think you've also developed a routine over the last week. And mm. it's, a, it's a bit like the momentum thing in terms of each project, but you've also got the momentum of... You get up, you have breakfast in the studio, have a coffee in the studio, have lunch, and then you do other things in the afternoon. Yeah. It does seem to work quite well. Yeah, it's worked out really well. And I quite like it because I get um, a couple of hours of peace. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm joking. No, I actually quite miss you. It's almost like you're not in the house because of the, the nature of the soundproofing. If you're getting a bit um, animated on your recording, I can hear this vague Oh, oh yeah, I, I mean, I had some really argumentative <laughs> scenes, you know, the climax to a novel, and the book, the, the box is shaking. Cause... Oh my god, yeah, I mean, it was it was something else, you know, it was, you know, potential shootout. But other than that, it's like I'm home alone. It really is because mm. there's no sound, there's no sort no. of shuffling or sneezing or coughing no. or anything like that. It's completely silent. So it is. It's been quite a quiet week for me in yeah. those terms. No, that's true. So that's I, true. I've, being able to concentrate quite hard myself and get quite a lot of done of all the proofreading and um but next week so we have a book publishing way beyond a lie on tuesday which we're very much looking forward to and we're interviewing for next week's podcast linda huber linda huber yeah over in switzerland well as you'll remember linda's diary's daughter came out earlier this year and was uh, a runaway success and has been a, a sort of a, a solid seller for us ever since. And that was a very touching, but also quite just, you know, sort of emotionally wrenching story. Mm, a tear-jerking. Yeah, set in Glasgow. Now, this one is set in Yorkshire. And it's, well, to want, you know, it's about the impact of historical child abuse. And so it is a tough subject. It's very well written. It's very, very believable circumstances but the impact on on all sorts of people gen, through different generations mm. is is really the, the the theme of of her book and she she does write with great humanity all of her books are, are touched by that so we'll be talking to linda about why she's approached this subject and the the challenges that it had but uh, pact of silence is the book it's out uh well, next week um as we interview linda so and yeah. that's also available for pre-order too at the moment. So. Absolutely. We've got lots of pre-orders on the go. <laughs> Check out our website. In fact, we'll put something on the front page and say, boy, pre-order now <laughs> uh, and catch up with things you haven't bought recently, like Wayland Babes or Genesis Inquiry <laughs> or any of those other things. Genesis is doing superbly well as well. Actually, uh, I, Jarvis. I would like to mention something about um, 
So the Genesis Inquiry, we have a Facebook ad at the moment, and I spotted this this morning that um, somebody commented not about the Genesis Inquiry, but she, her comment, it just it really touched me. It just said, I'm still making my way through the free books that you offer and what good reads they are. She, you know, that was like, I love the fact that what we offer for free isn't just any old stuff. It's actually good stuff that people appreciate. No, it's, I mean, Crime Bites is our main offer. So if you mm. sign up to our website, www.hobeck.net, um, you get an opportunity at the front page. It will launch, you know, a chance to sign in and, and, and sign up for our newsletter. And you get this wealth of free content from a number of our authors. It's it's an unbelievable offer. I don't think any other publisher in the country is doing this. No, it's quite a lot now. You know, it's about 700, 800 pages worth of crime fiction. Yeah, it's no, great. absolutely. Um, you know, and it's great credit to the authors who've uh, worked so hard on it. And, you know, obviously to us putting it out there. But, it, you know, it is what we we want people to recognise Hoback as the place where you get great storytelling. And the quality never, you know, is never in question. And it isn't in question. It's great stuff. Great authors. We're very, very fortunate. And if you're feeling Christmassy, last year's Christmas anthology is also available for free. For it download. is, yeah. Never mind the baubles. That's Here's the Hobeck team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the Dark Side of Christmas is out uh, on December the 7th. It is, indeed. Alongside. Silenced. By Jenny Ensor. So we yeah, we, are, we could remain busy, um, <laughs> but that, that's, a, that's a given. Yeah, but I wouldn't want it any other way. I love it. No. And this podcast we love doing too. So Linda Huber is our guest next week. Okay, time to wrap up the show. Thank you for joining us for the Hobcast Book Show number 43. Mm -hmm. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. And it remains for us to say thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful and, above all, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.